My name is Dr. Nate Shannock. And my name is Merrick Egber. Um, this is the official podcast of the Els for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name. And Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. But we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not part of the podcast, I'm part of the growing research team. When I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling in the Gashavis department like Lou. I'm also autistic. This is our 31st episode of the podcast, celebrating National Disability Employment Awareness Month, NDEAM, with advisory board member Katie Santoro and Club of Ibis general manager Stephen uh, Logios. Um, both individuals play an important role in our discussion on disability and employment, so make sure to stay tuned for their interviews on part A of the podcast. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews, or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Also, check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things we would like to have on a written record for all of you for autism fans. But first, here are some news and updates about the foundation. First of all, tune into episode 30 to listen to our interviews with advisory board member, Dr. Stephen Shore, and my co-host and friend, Dr. Nate Chenock. They talk about the qualities of education, developments that are useful for the future of autism, and the qualities of the modern world. Make sure to also listen to the rest of the program to get an idea of what we were doing at the foundation during that time and learn something new about the autism community for our Today in the World of Autism segment. For October, we would like to embrace the global community. My blog article for the month will focus on how much autism is a worldwide condition and how we are planning to help the population with it. Please bookmark our blog archives for any new blog article that comes down the pike. This month, we are celebrating National Disability Employment Awareness Month, or NDEAM. It has been 32 years since the Americans with Disabilities Act has been passed, and we have made greater strides in giving individuals with disabilities work opportunities. Still, the number of people underemployed or unemployed with a disability is still larger than the general population. The more we show the value of our population with autism, the greater the march would be the true self-actualization. Through organizations like us and programs like the Autism at Work Program by SAP, that populations with disabilities matter. Thanks to all to listen, who are listening to us. Next, we just started up our movie night program again with our rec coordinator, Greg Connors, for our fall movie night. On Friday, October 18th, participants showed up at 6 p.m. to watch the movie Hogus Focus, which just got a sequel on the Disney Plus subscription service. We'll also have two more events Friday, November 18th, and Friday, December 16th coming up for people to participate. I'll refer to our flyer in our show notes. Our session two of programs for the autumn season are beginning for the month. That means time to catch up to dance, yoga, tennis, and golf as examples. Please contact Greg Connors to find out how you can register for session two of our fall programs. And lastly, our following festival will be held on Halloween, which is Monday, October 31st, which will be an autism-friendly evening with trick-or-treating a sensory-friendly haunted house and more. I'll plan to volunteer at our festival to get pied in the face and dunked in the tank. This will also launch the start of our fall food drive that will continue through November, where all goods will be donated to a local food bank. I hope it to be successful. 
So Nate, here's my question for your input. How have you celebrated Halloween? Well, Merrick, this may be the toughest question that you've ever approached me with on the podcast. Well, it sort of varies based on where I was living, how old I was. There's been a lot of different Halloween celebrations over the years. Uh, typically, um, these days, I will get together with some, some family and maybe some friends and rotate between one of my usual costumes, which would be either a cowboy, um, a ghost, or a mad scientist. Those are usually my, my three go-tos. And then trying to, to find uh, the scariest movie possible for that given year. And yeah, just celebrating with some spookiness. What about you, Merrick? So do you plan uh, the movie based upon what costume you pick? Like, for example, if you uh, dressed up as a cowboy, do you all watch From Dusk Till Dawn? <laughs> that would make a lot more sense than the usual process. But no, it's pretty, it's pretty random. And the last couple of years, we've watched the new rendition of the Halloween series with Michael Myers. So maybe we'll, we'll end up watching the, the most recent one, although I think it only got a 2% on Rotten Tomatoes. So we'll, we'll set the expectations pretty, pretty low. This is kind of a weird kind of thing in my mind, but it's interesting that the individual's name, that the killer's name in the Halloween series is Michael Myers, and there's the actor Mike Myers. And one of Mike Myers' first movies was in So I Married an Axe Murderer. So <laughs> I'm sure that someone will put up a story which basically has uh, Mike Myers becoming Michael Myers uh, after getting possessed by the spirit of the axe murderer who he married. I think it's a brilliant idea. My one concern is that if if Mike Myers ends up taking over the role of Michael Myers and he accidentally breaks into an Austin Powers accent, then, you know, that, that might take a, away from the scariness just a little bit. Well, that, that would be, uh, you know, they did parody uh, James Bond. So uh, why not parody? Oh, wait a minute. There have been two or three series of the horror movie parodies. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Scary movie, Scream. Yeah, you can't really do that much else with that kind of concept anymore. Merrick, do you enjoy scary movies at all? That was uh, from Scream, the first Scream. Do you, do you like scary movies? Oh, I, I do you like You didn't those. remember that? I, I, I remember. Do you watch scary movies? That was from the first Scream. I, I like the the comedies, the parodies also, but but do you like actual movies that are that are scary? <laughs> okay. Um, one of my favorite horror films is probably the second Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Okay. 
I really, really liked the first one, but I thought that the implications of the second one were much more tragic and in a way better because to me, I see a horror movie. I don't think as much about whether it would scare me because usually it doesn't scare me much because I know that it's not real, but it's more about how clever the concepts are. Like, for example, my favorite movie of the year is the movie X. Um, they actually came out with a prequel, which was really, really good in theaters called Pearl. Um, and it's interesting because X came out in March of this year and Pearl came out like a month ago. So, and, and they're both high quality films, but the thing about X is that while it does have some cheesy horror movie cliches, there's a lot about it and there's a lot to it. And it also uh, saves many of the chills closer towards the end of the movie instead of just freaking you out every single second. So it's a very studied, very steady kind of film. Um, and uh, if you may guess, um, if I was to have a discussion about the themes and topics of the film, we would have to go to a, uh, how can I say it? Uh, two o'clock a.m. kind of broadcast. <laughs> the late, 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 late at night broadcast. Understood. I don't foresee us shifting from the, the early evening time block to the, to the twilight uh, hours on radio. So yeah, probably best not to share. Well, I was almost thinking about having a pun intended moment because you said twilight. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that I've used up the wordplay quota for the, for the uh, broadcast. And we're just getting started, folks. But uh, for me, though, if you were to, because you asked me how I celebrate Halloween, I usually don't celebrate it much. I don't go to any costume parties. I used to go trick-or-treating around the old neighborhood when I was a lot younger. But, um, you know, I, I don't usually celebrate it that much anymore. If I celebrate it at all, it's usually more attached to work than it is really to anything else. Like uh, at one point I went out to dinner at a very un-Halloween-y kind of place. Um, you know, I, I just I, I love candy. I love decorations. I love this whole thing with the supernatural. But it's not exactly something that I uh, participate much in. Gotcha. Yeah, well, I definitely want to check out the movies you recommended. And I have two. Well, actually, um, one of the one of my favorite scary shows or scary movies that I saw in the last couple of years was the, the Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. So if you're if you're like me and you're a big scare king, um, then th this is a definitely a, the kind of show for you. I did see like three or four horror movies almost like in a row, where I saw The Black Phone, mm -hmm. um, and I saw Barbarian. It was like, uh, and then I saw X, and I saw um, Pearl. So I've seen like four horror movies within the span of like one or two months. So uh, 
If, if anyone wants to ask uh, for my opinions about the horror movies of 2022, you can maybe ask me. I'll, I'll give some uh, ideas. Per, perhaps uh, a blog post in the near future. Merrick ranks the top horror movies of the year. It will creep you out. <laughs> All righty. Well, let's now, see. Sorry? Yeah, any more news for us today? No more news. Uh, all the news, it's fit, it's fit to speak. That's a take on the New York Times, all the news that's fit to print. For us, it's all the news that's fit to speak. All right. Now we're going on to today in the world of autism, starting with Dr. Nate Shinnok and his fantastic research-oriented stories. Okay, guys, we've got some truly spooky, I mean, fascinating stories to share with you today for the month of October. So first of all, there was a recent study from BYU, Brigham Young University, which found that when parents of children with autism were trained to intervene at home by way of a parent-implemented intervention, these children ended up developing better language and behavioral skills, which gave them a chance at a brighter future. Notably, this therapeutic approach is also beneficial from a financial time and travel perspective. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that the annual medical expense for a child with autism spectrum disorder averages between $4,100 and $6,200 more than for a child without ASD. That estimate was with, without the consideration of behavioral interventions, which is a form of one-on-one -on -one instruction that can range from 20 to 40 hours a week and can also be costly, even though it's highly beneficial. The study at BYU was led by, by Dr. Y. Man Chang, um, a doctoral, sorry, a, a doctoral student in this case, soon to be a doctor, we hope, of the McKay School of Education. The study was a meta-analysis, meaning that it was a compilation of many research studies on this topic. And it included 51 controlled trials, which took place all over the globe. And nine of them occurred in non-English speaking countries. The analysis produced results um, or the analysis compiled results of various at-home parental interventions, which were delivered by parents of 2000 895 children who were on average 5.5 years old. So the average intervention was about 90 minutes at a given time occurring for 13 sessions per trial. And across the studies, parents of children with autism spectrum disorder were trained to foster better behavior, communication, 
social interaction and daily living skills um, in their child. And so these were just many of the benefits that were achievable with the parent-directed intervention. The positive results were discovered for approximately 87% of the families, okay? So we know that parent-implemented intervention is a highly effective approach and it also has great benefits as far as being time effective and cost effective. And Merrick, I was hoping, could you please tell us a little bit more about parent implemented interventions that are being offered at the Else for Autism Foundation? Well, I will say um, that the purpose of our foundation, it's not just that we have a collection of experts and we have, you know, some of the best individuals that offer treatments and, you know, all kinds of great uh, services and programs to individuals with autism and their families, but we also uh, really, really recommend that, that parents, you know, they're the ones in control of what's going on. And so one of the programs that we have that's uh, one of our uh, jewel stones is uh, the Ruby uh, program. And what we formally call it is the Ruby, is the Ruby R-U-B-I. Um, it's, it's a parent training program. And what it does is it basically, you have a group of parents who are interested in learning more about how to implement uh, proper and best practices of interventions for their children and and they learn about it through the expert guidance of our professionals. And the program has been going on for, I believe, a few years now. It's been very successful. And that's one of the ways we do it. Another way we do it is we have our roundtable session where parents and even their children can get invited to these roundtable sessions and we have experts come on board and they discuss um, different topics that are of uh, great importance. And, you know, they talk and questions are asked and, you know, it's a real roundtable discussion. And that also, I believe, is a very, very positive influence because, you know, if you're a parent, you know what exactly is the best for your child. And if you may not know, then it is great to get, you know, the kind of help and knowledge and advice that, that we can offer because, you know, we, we don't have individuals who oversee 24-7. Instead, we are able to support and assist. And then, um, you know, it's in some ways, it's kind of up to the parents of these families to 
I guess, keep on keeping on uh, once the child is out of the, well, once the child goes home or once the, the, the frame of the service is not there for a temporary moment, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. That's, in my opinion, that would be the, the biggest pro to parent implemented interventions is that a lot of times it's difficult to, to get behavioral improvements or communication improvements to occur outside of the therapeutic setting. And when the parent is also the therapist or has the skills to, to provide therapy, then you know, this, this can lead to a really good generalization of the skills, like to different contexts and different settings. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And yeah, I wanted to, in addition to the, the great programs that the foundation is currently offered, I just wanted, I wanted to um, quickly mention um, a project that we collaborated on a couple years ago with uh, the Seaver Autism Center of, of Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. And this was a project researching our Spring Into Action program, which is um, an early intervention where um, a parent is taught, you know, a lot of uh, basically taught how to play um, with their, their infant and how to interact with them in a manner that promotes social skills. And so we, we did some, some cool things. We assessed the effectiveness of the intervention, not just on behaviors, but also on EEG traits and, and eye tracking traits. And we, we had some really encouraging findings um, and we actually, we published an article back in May and maybe we can link it in our show notes. Um, but it was published in the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disabilities. Yeah, to me, it's uh, pretty much uh, kind of a, I wouldn't say an obvious thing, but it, it just seems so, you know, it's, it's, it's all about the support system. I think that uh, last time we were discussing uh, for one of the stories, I was talking about the support system and how a support system is very, very valuable. I think it was that story about that valedictorian and how important it was that the parents in that case never gave up and never let go. And because of that, their kid became extremely successful at, at academics. And, you know, um, it's just, it, it's something that, that really, really matters. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're right. There is an element of intuitiveness uh, to that approach. But yeah, I guess the key would be just having sound, uh, you know, qualified therapists to, to oversee those interventions. And then, yeah, just figuring out um, how parents can best 
absorb those skills. Yeah, never be afraid to ask for help. That's right. It's always good advice. That's right. Okay, so for my second story, I went a little bit more scientific, but I think this is a really groundbreaking. Are you wearing vibe. your mad scientist costume right now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my hair is, is slowly turning green as I'll report this article. So scientists have now demonstrated a new way to study conditions like ASD, ADHD, and schizophrenia, really any neurological or, or neuro, neuropsychological um, condition. And this approach involves transplanting a cluster of living human brain cells from a dish in the lab to the brain of a newborn rat. These results were published in Nature by a team of researchers from Stanford University. And no, this is not uh, a Halloween joke. This is not a scary movie that I'm referring to. Yeah, Once I was again, thinking that this is like some kind of a mad science experiment. It, it just you, calls into question whether you're wearing that costume right now. Oh, I very well may be. And <laughs> yeah, you, you could definitely reach that conclusion but so so once again transplanting a cluster of living human brain cells from a dish in the lab to the brain of a newborn rat and this cluster which is known as a brain organoid will then continue to develop in ways that mimic a human brain and may allow scientists to gain insights into what goes wrong within the brain for a host of neuropsychiatric disorders. This advance is likely to make some people uneasy, said bioethicist Insu Hyun, who's the director of life sciences at the Museum of Science in Boston and an affiliate of the Harvard Medical, Medical School Center for Bioethics. And he also was quoted and said, there's a tendency for people to assume that when you transfer the biomaterials from one species into another, that you transfer the essence of that animal into the other. And he also added that even the most advanced brain organoids are still very rudimentary versions of a human brain. Okay, so certain cells, you can understand how those cells develop and, and maybe make connections um, throughout throughout the brain, but his argument is that you're not giving a rat a, a human level of consciousness, so to speak. The success in transplanting human brain organoids into a living animal appears to remove a major barrier to using them as models of human disease. So even in some of the best rat models for diseases, they haven't really extended all that well into human trials. Human brain organoids are made from pluripotent stem cells, which can be coaxed into becoming various types of brain cells. These cells are grown in a rotating container known as a bioreactor, which allows the cells to spontaneously form brain-like spheres about the size of a small pea. Super cool, mini brains. 
Um, and yes, my mad scientist coat is definitely on at this point. These brain-like spheres are then implanted into the newborn rats. And miraculously, scientists have found that these human cells, which are implanted into, let's say, the somatosensory cortex, will respond to rat whisker stimulation. And those that emerge in the motor cortex are seen activating when the rat is moving around. So clearly, these cells are, are living and functioning in the rat brain. Um, like I said, many scientists and philosophers have expressed ethical concerns, believing that it may lead rats to developing human-like uh, state of consciousness. So as with many scientific breakthroughs, there is an ethical issue, which is, does the, does the research that's being done, do the potential benefits of it outweigh the ethical concerns or does, does it outweigh the harm that's being caused to the animals in this case? And Merrick, I wanna just ask you, what are your reactions to this story? You know, what do you think are the implications? Of course, it's very novel. It's, it's in its just emerging stages, but it's, it sounds like a breakthrough to me. Well, you want to know what I think about this? Um, yeah. So it's the same thing I think about every night to take over the world, Pinky. Sorry. <laughs> That's a pinky in the brain reference. And just thinking about that right now, you have these two rats and one of them is pinky, one of them is the brain and the one's the genius, the others, yeah, you know, it's a theme song. But um, uh, so I'm thinking about this. This is uh, really interesting because um, the question is, why uh, rats? I know that we generally use, that's why you have like the term lab mice, because you generally use these types of animals when it comes to experiments and the like. Um, but it's, uh, I'm thinking about it though, are, are these probably the best? Uh, animals to use to uh, are, are there like neuroorganisms are are they like for example what about um, chimps or apes or monkeys um, would that be considered to be a little bit too um, a little bit too high profile maybe uh, because I, I think that it's really about, you know, we, we, we have a lot that we uh, take into account when it comes into the fact that these animals um, are, we use them a lot in considering, you know, methods of psychology, methods of neurology, um, and is that because because we see a common element or a common transference between the rats and um, a human being when it comes to uh, 
you know, brains and and neurology and that kind of thing. Um, I, I'm not asking you per se to be a historian here, but why exactly is it that uh, like lab rat, that kind of thing? Why why is it that those kinds of animals are seen as like the the blueprint when it comes to looking at human psychological makeup? Yeah, it's a it's an excellent question. And I want to apologize in advance to any of our listeners who have pet mice or rats or, you know, are very fond of rats because some of my comments may be um, seen as a little bit offensive to those animals. But so you're absolutely right, Merrick, to make inferences about human brain functioning and coming up with models for diseases using a more genetically similar animal like a, a chimpanzee or even a bonobo monkey would be the most similar. That's a natural trans transition. That would be if this research is deemed effective in, in rats. Um, the next step would be trying this technique out with, um, with, with those chimpanzees, you know, to see if it also holds true for something that's more genetically similar to us. When it comes to lab rats, you know, I hate to say it, but they're very inexpensive. Um, they have most of the brain structures that humans brain human brains have, so they can still be valuable for understanding brain development. But um, like I said, they're very inexpensive. And uh, in the scientific community, I guess a lot of people feel that they're somewhat uh, dispensable. Yeah, and they're not as dangerous, I guess. Um, good there point. is that documentary, I forget the name of it. It was like Project, I forget the full name, but it was about how this uh, woman took home this monkey and tried to, you know, domesticate it fully to make it feel like it was completely human and how it spectacularly backfired with uh, <laughs> dangerous results. So I, I can I can understand that. Um, it's it's interesting to know. Uh, which animals have a physiology uh, similar to humans? For example, um, if I was a mad scientist, I would consider a process by which we would insert gills, or there would be like a surgical process to insert gills into a human being. And I've heard that the animal that actually has the closest to the way we take in water, to the way we swim and everything like that are actually pigs. So if you had to basically create kind of like an artificial gill system, you would have to possibly look at pigs first than any other animals. So it's, it's really, really interesting how we relate to members or other members of the animal kingdom. Yeah. Yeah, As, that is really interesting. Sorry? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, so 
I, uh, I, I do believe, um, you know, if there is a way to, uh, sort of, uh, I guess, clear away the brush when it comes to so many different things in order to give, you know, individuals who wish for improvements and wish for greater research and testing into these types of uh, neurological disorders, um, I, th I think that uh, you know, you've got to move somewhere because um, I, I uh, because I believe that whether or not a rat develops a human-like consciousness, um, you know, unless it was really to become a real pinky in the brain situation, I don't necessarily fear it as much. Um, I, I, I do believe that, that it would be uh, useful uh, if we could unlock um, some of the parts of uh, the brain that we still don't completely understand. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I guess if there was like a better way to do it, um, you know, that, that would be an interesting possibility, but there are very few alternate ways that I can think of this actually happening. So yeah. you, you take a risk, but if the, it's really about how risky it is. And I don't think that it's that risky. I think that it's something that, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's, that's worth a try. I have to say it's something that's worth a try. Then again, I'm the kind of person who is interested in the implications of resurrecting the woolly mammoth using um, some kind of a process of cloning or clone DNA. So I'm not exactly the most bioethical kind of person, but I, I, I do believe that in, when it comes to any kind of animal, I think that's, to me, I think that it's worth a try. I hear you, Merrick. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, um... Look, a lot of the, the animals that are used in these types of studies are, are injured or are hurt anyways. Um, so this, this does seem to be a more efficient way uh, of trying to, to come up with these disease models. So I'll pass it on to you now for the human interest stories for today. Oh, really? It's more of the Merrick rambling stories because I, these two stories that I am doing are actually all personal commentaries. The first one is about the importance of mentorships. So <clears throat> the world can be a cold one. We expect so many individuals out there to already have a social toolkit in order to maximize their lives in the workforce. What is important about this is that so many of our lives are spent at work and many of us don't have that much we do outside of work. 
I'd like to ask everyone a question. If someone was very shy in a work setting, what would you do? Would you talk to them or would you stick to your familiar work buddies and ignore them? When I was working at the places I worked at, I had little of a social life for my coworkers outside of work. To me, I guess I didn't want to overextend my work life to feature them, and it kind of felt reciprocal in a sense. Still, I really liked socializing with my coworkers at work because it made the time go by quicker, even if it annoyed my bosses. In my experiences, just because someone is aloof or usually is alone doesn't mean that they don't like company. It's probably just that they have been burnt so many times at trying to establish a social relationship that they may feel that they are better off alone. Plus, social stimuli can feel overwhelming. Yet, when I talk about video games with anyone, my eyes light up. That's why the idea of the little professor exists. The ability to teach people about things that I know gives me a reason to be here, a reason to connect with others, and that brings us into the idea of mentors. A mentor at work doesn't just have to be a teacher, but a friend, a confidant, someone who believes in you as much as you end up believing in them. Individuals of autism all start out differently from others and may want to feel a sense of belonging, especially if bullying rates are high against the population. Without my mentors at work, I would have felt bored and a lack of individualism, perhaps ironically. Nate, what do you consider a good mentor? Well, I'm very happy that you you, you use this topic for, for one of the stories for today. Um, it's so important. I mean, I, I, um, I know I've been in some, some really positive work environments, worked with some, been blessed to have worked with some brilliant people and also been in some environments that were more negative and, you know, maybe not as healthy and, so it's very, very important topic. And I think, um, you know, our interview with Katie today probably also illustrates the importance of a good and positive work environment. So now that aside, let me actually answer the question here. So a good mentor, I would say, is somebody who really um, allows the, the other person to flourish. So they, they can recognize what the other person's strengths are and they may play, play to those strengths and, and give um, that person assignments that, that pertain to that strength. So if you have an excellent writer, then maybe you're assigning that person to do press releases or to write journal articles, that sort of thing. And you're really just giving them the opportunity to be successful. Um, at the same time, if you do know that, that maybe public speaking is not their strong suit, um, then if there is a public speaking engagement, maybe you as the mentor are you know, doing something like going first with the audience and kind of warming up the crowd to, to take the pressure off a bit. Um, and the other, aspect of being a good mentor would be, um, I would say striking the right mix between being a friend and also being someone that's well-respected and someone that the, the coworker can learn from. Uh, so that means, you know, using your, your knowledge to to help advance this other person's knowledge set, you know, being a good teacher, but also being someone that's approachable and being someone that 
you know, um, doesn't just sit in their office um, with their eyes on their computer the whole time. You know, someone who's who's engaged, um, social, and uh, and setting up an open line of communication. Those are all very, very good, uh, you know, qualities to have in someone who's a good mentor. Yeah, thank you. All right, so uh, my second story, sorry. I hope I can be a good mentor one day. Uh, you technically already have. Um, hey. I mean, I would <laughs> consider you kind of a mentor, even though you're a lot younger, you're younger than me. It doesn't really matter because your skill setting or knowledge is different enough that in a way you have kind of mentored me in you know, a potential way. Well, I would argue the same for you. And to that point, I don't think a mentor has to be someone who's, who's maybe um, more knowledgeable or maybe older or, or wiser, but, you know, it's just somebody that, that you can learn from um, on a given topic. Okay, so next uh, broadcast, I will use this uh, time to do the top 10 things I learned from uh, my co-host. Uh-oh, that, that sounds like a snooze fest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so my second story is about a service that I've used for years. Uh, it's uh, Palm Tran Connection. So while the COVID-19 virus may have impacted the definition of work, it is almost a year since I came back to my office at the Else for Autism Foundation. There may be many remote jobs available for people who are unable to get around by themselves, but still there may be some that come from untrustworthy or menial sources. I'd like to take this opportunity to address the public service I use to get around by myself. In Palm Beach County, where we are based, there is a vehicular public transportation service called Palm Tran Connection, which is a part of the Palm Tran busing services. What the connection service does is it is a paratransit service, which means that once you are signed on for the disabled and the elderly, they bring a banner or bus over to your door to pick you up for $3.50 each way. You may ask for any accommodations and the drivers usually use GPS to get to where they can drop you off anywhere in the county. Plus they have trackers for all their vehicles so you can tell where they are. Ever since 2006 have I used the service and I have seen the positives and the negatives. Your call lines to reserve trips and the amount of days to reserve ahead of time are restrictive. Also, since you're part of a line, then you have to depend on everything else going right to be where you want to go on time. Thankfully, the drivers are great and I cannot think of another alternative to the service currently. For many people like me, Palm Train Connection is the key element to get to work and to live a productive life. While timing can be off, proper accommodations are necessary to get everyone who can work to the job that they work at. Still doesn't substitute for reliable transportation though. Nate, what is the importance of transportation to the workforce? Well, I, I don't think you could overstate the importance. It's, it's really... Uh... It's, it's a key aspect of a job. And you oftentimes ask people about the pros and cons of a work situation. And one of the first couple points that they'll make is, oh, you know, I have a short commute to work or, oh my goodness, you know, I'm stuck in 
traffic on I-95 for an hour and a half. And uh, I, think, I think it has a lot to do with someone's work satisfaction. Um, so when you, when you have an amazing service like Palm Tran Connection, you know, um, I just think it's wonderful because it, it does take away um, a major barrier for people with autism and for other disabilities um, and, and is, is hopefully just one element uh, of a growing chain of elements that will help make work more accessible for these individuals. Um, so yeah, I commend um, this organization, this service. Uh, I know it's been really helpful for you, Merrick. And so that makes me happy. Um, and, and yeah, I, I just hope that more services like this continue to emerge so that um, this is just one barrier that can be can be taken away from the equation. And uh, Merrick, I know you've made this point. Katie also made this point as we go more and more virtual. Um, hopefully uh, uh, more and more jobs can be completed remotely um, so that it, it may not be about, well, who has the shortest transportation to the job but more just about, well, who out there is the most qualified and has the best skill set. So yeah, that would be my two cents on the importance of transportation. Yeah, two cents adjusted for inflation. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, you could say that again. Yeah, okay. Um... But yeah, you had some really, really good points. Um, so um, I, I think that um, as I've probably said before, so much of the world today, you can access from your computer, from your phone. Um, even when I would do, even when I would deposit my checks that I would get from my, uh, from you know, anything else that I do, um, I do it through the Bank of America uh, mobile app. And all it does is it uh, is I scan it, I uh, take photos of the front and back of the check, I sign it and everything. And it gets deposited without me having to even step foot into a bank. So uh, it's, it's, Definitely very, very interesting. Um, that and the food delivery services that are available and Instacart and all of that. It's a, it's a very interesting kind of, you can, I don't know if you can call it an alternative life or something like that, but, but it's a very, very interesting. Yeah, no question about it. Yeah. And uh, you're making a, a good point about the other ways that uh, the other modes of technology that are helping to break down the barrier of transportation. Hey, not just for work, but also for eating because, Hey, we, God knows we've got to eat. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, before we go, we want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. 
And because of that, we will be seeing you again in November with some more coverage on us and the autistic community in general. So do you want to close us off with the familiar Oh. I wish that I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly. I fly into the air so high, oh, like a butterfly. Moth is a butterfly without any colors But what's beautiful is what's inside Maybe a moth is just a butterfly trying to hide Well I'm just a caterpillar crawling around Knowledge in my head but my feet on the ground Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky Like a butterfly I wish that I could fly so high like a butterfly, I fly into the air so high. Oh, like a butterfly, like a bird, I was meant to soar. I will fly through the sunlight and even when it pours, you can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind. In the future, your eyes will light up to think that I was once a poor caterpillar. Like a flock of butterflies I wish I could fly So high Oh, like a butterfly I fly into the air So high Just like a butterfly Ah uh -huh.